0: Listener Production. Hello, it is Jess here. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to share one of my favourite conversations that I've had this year. And this time, though, I wasn't asking the questions. I was the guest. And I was speaking to the extraordinary Taria Pitt on her fabulous podcast, Taria Pitt is Hard Work. Now, Taria is a woman that I reckon Not only I reckon, I know she's the top of my list of people that I just think is the Ant's Pants. And as she taught me the word, she is badass. (laughs) And I even say it with a terrible accent, but yep, that is Taria Pitt. So I couldn't wait to sit down and be on the other side of the microphone and chat with her, have her ask me the questions. And I love that opportunity She's a fantastic listener. She shares so much of her life and her life lessons, things that have helped her. And so I love that chance to be able to open up to her and talk about times in my life when I'd felt at my lowest for what it was that had
1: got me through. Take a listen. Let me level with you, mate. If you like what I'm doing here, you are going to love the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show.
0: Are you sick of the small talk? Me too. I'm Jess Rowe and that's why my podcast series is all about big talk. Because life is just too crazy and interesting to waste time talking about stuff that doesn't matter.
1: Jess Rowe, you know her as a journo and as a TV presenter for decades, she brought us the big stories. Jess is also a podcaster with listener. Oh, come on. But she knew. <laughs> she knew she had that sparkle in her eye. But it's not just her serious skills as an interviewer to go deep. Jess gets some big names. I guess that's why they call it the big talk show. I'm talking Keith Urban. Well, we don't fit in a neat box, do we? None of us do.
0: No. Hopefully not. I think it would be your authentic selves. It would be boring. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) Danny Winogue.
0: There needs to be more hours in 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there was, you would find
1: it. Yes. (laughs) You would, Danny. And recently she had David Wenham. Remember Diver Dan? Diver Dan people. Listen real, think real. If you do those two things, everything else falls into place. Jess skips the small talk, goes straight to the top to show you a different side to some people that you love. You can follow the Jess Row Big Talk show now for free on the Listener app. There's a link in the description. The thing, though, I love about Jess is her vulnerability. Like all of us, she's a work in progress and Jess has learned how to embrace her imperfections, how to be brave and how to ask for help. There was a lot of love in this room during this one. Here's my mate, Jess Rowe. So Jess, the first time I think I met you was at that speech thing, right? In Sydney. And I just had Rahidi. He was probably two or three weeks old. And the night before I had a terrible sleep. He woke up every 20 minutes. I was really tired, felt fat, sluggish, didn't want to do it, all of those things. And I remember, I can't remember what you said to me, but I felt really seen by you. You acknowledged what my body had just gone through to produce a child. You understood how hard it is to have a child, especially a newborn, even more so. Also, before that, I had been reading your book at night while I was breastfeeding my son. And every couple of pages, I'd cry. I'd be like, (laughs) She gets it. She gets it. So I was, really, I was really stoked and really happy to meet you. So I just wanted to say thank, thank you, Jess. I feel like there's not, there's not a very big dialogue going on about being a new mum.
0: There's not, and thank you for saying that to me. I I remember meeting you and just being blown away that there you were looking immaculate, about to go on stage in front of a thousand people, and as you said, you'd ha- you'd had a brand new baby. Because I remember those days so clearly, where yes. I couldn't even I couldn't get out of the house. So the fact that you are able to be out putting your professional hat on and speaking to all these people, I I just, it blew me away. And I am someone who the older I get, the more comfortable I am in my skin. And also the more strongly I feel about sharing our experiences and stories. So we don't feel alone. When I was a new mum, I struggled so much. I had terrible postnatal depression with both of my girls, but especially with Allegra, who's now 15. And those early days of having her were the worst of my life. They were the worst days of my life. And to me, the great sort of irony if that was supposedly that's meant to be the happiest time of your life. And the exterior from people all around you is about, oh, isn't this the best time of your life? And, oh, you're so happy. And, and I was a great pretender. Having been in the media for so long, I was very good at putting on the face. But on the inside, I had never felt such despair and such sadness. And, and I felt like a failure. I felt like I was letting down my brand new baby, my darling husband and our sort of new family. And and that's why I I talk about what happened to me because postnatal depression, it is so common. The statistics are one in seven new mums. Also, it, it impacts on dads as well. I actually think it's probably it's far more widespread because we still don't talk about it enough. It's almost there's sort of this myth around motherhood and this myth around, oh, we're all meant to be knowing what to do all the time. And it's supposedly meant to come naturally. And I mean, I struggled to breastfeed Allegra. And and that added to my sense of failure because I thought, oh, my God, if I can't even feed my baby, what does that mean for the sort of mum I am? And and I look back on that time and I tied myself in knots about oh, I've got to get this right. And I remember I never knew nipples could bleed until I tried to breastfeed. It's horrible. <laughs> but I kept I kept persisting because I thought I'd been a perfectionist. I'm not anymore. But I thought, okay, if I put my mind to this, I can do this. And I really felt I have to. And I remember my mum saying to me, what are you doing? You, I... I gave you bottles, <laughs> you, I gave you formula and you've turned out fine. But I had this notion that, oh my God, no, I have to do it the, the, the right way. But there's no wrong or right way. Uh, it's what is right for you and your family. And we don't trust ourselves enough. And then we don't, I don't think, reach out enough to have help because we feel like, oh my God, we're the only ones, we're the failures. And that's why I still talk about that time. And it's funny when I think back to that time, I still feel that same sort of, I can feel my chest tightening, that sense of anxiety, the dread, the heaviness. It it just comes back like that.
1: Well, I just want to say thank you to start with for sharing that stuff and sharing that stuff in your book because you being vulnerable helps so many women out there. It helped me when I first had Rahidi and I remember when I first had Hakavai. It seems really bizarre to me now but, I like, I, I gave birth to him and then I wrote a list of things to do when he was crying to help him stop and it's, it just seems bizarre to me now, but at the time, the fact that I felt like I needed to write a list and that list of things was like, check if he needs to feed, check his nappy, check his temperature. And you're right, we assume that motherhood will come naturally to us. And I know for some women it does. And being a mother, they feel like that was what they were born to do. But I feel like for me, having to write a list... Think of what to do when my baby was crying, um, it was obviously not something that I felt like I was born to do. I felt like it was something I had to apply myself at and I had to figure out a way through it. You talked a little bit about being a um, a retired perfectionist. Where did that come from? Do you think? being a perfectionist, where that originally
0: sort of happened, I suppose, was i I'm the eldest. I've got two younger sisters. My mum has got bipolar disorder, which is a a serious mental illness, and I spent much of my early life caring for my mum and for my two younger sisters. And in a way that was good for me, I became more resilient. I had to have a lot more responsibilities from an earlier age, but it also set me up down the track for not asking for help, because I felt that mm-hmm. if I created this perfect or seemingly perfect life for myself, and I do that because you know perfect, nothing is perfect. but you know I thought if i if I do these certain things, I can insulate myself from having the sort of pain that my mum had to experience. and that's I look back now and I mean that's a ridiculous way to deal with it, but but that was how I, compartmentalised what was going on. And then it also, what it also helped me do is because I was used to having to put on a brave face for my mum and for my sisters that helped me with a career in media because it's all about you keep the show on the road regardless of what else is going on and so it made me sort of work hard and aim have a goal and think okay I'll tick these boxes and I'll do this 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 and this and then I'll reach that and then that'll happen so and that worked well for a time but of course it's not a realistic way to continue leading your life. And so what happened to me when I became a mum, or even in the lead up to it, I went through, PD. my husband and I, we went through IVF. So that was already a bit of a chink for me because I felt, oh, I, um, I thought becoming pregnant would be easy, but it wasn't. Right. It wasn't. So then that was something... oh, oh, I'm not doing what women are supposed to do or meant to just do. So that was the start of it. And then when I realised that I had the postnatal depression, I felt so ashamed. And so this perfect life that I had created for myself started to crumble. And because up until that point, it had been about this facade to the wider world and that when I realised... I can't keep this facade up, it t- it was very hard for me to initially ask for help. It was a real... Because I felt like a failure and I, I had thought I'd never really asked for help up until that point in my life because I... F- You'd never asked for help? No, no, because I thought I had to do it on my own. So it was a really... a a hard time for me to recognise that, I mean, I I was imperfect and, of course, I embrace that about myself now. But at the time, it was, I I really, like, I felt like going through the postnatal depression, I, I was crazy. I mean, and I say that and I like to joke about things, but I was a crazy woman. The sorts of thoughts that were going through my head the my anxiety was off the charts. As a new mum, you're anxious anyway, but my anxiety yeah, totally. was not remotely in check with what was really going on. And then I started to have very obsessive, scary thoughts about what could happen to Allegra. So this pattern of thinking was so foreign to me. I felt like I was disintegrating. and And also there was a part of me that was very frightened that I was becoming my mum and and I say that with the greatest respect to my beautiful mum because I love her so much but I had seen the struggles that she had had and I had thought by creating this seemingly perfect life for myself, I could insulate myself from any pain. So there was a big part of me that was afraid that, oh, my God, I'm now... what. I'm becoming what had happened to my mum. And it it was such a big step to ask for help. And what did that step look like, asking for help? It began with initially it was sort of... Nothing ever happens like that. I don't think there's sort of light, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm... you know, there's not light bulb moments where you go, yeah, magic wand. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> hey, I'd love a magic wand, but it was a series of steps. So I knew, first of all, w- the sorts of things I was going through, I knew early on that it it wasn't usual. Behavior for a new mum. I knew something was up, but I. Kn- how did you?
1: How did you know that though? My
0: intuition. I think we okay. need to tap okay. into. I knew. I. I just knew. I thought, nah, this is what I'm feeling and experiencing, is really not, the. I don't want to say the right way because there's no wrongs or rights, but I knew something was deeply wrong with how I was feeling. Okay. I then tried to push that away and thought, if I ignore it, it'll go away. Perhaps I'm imagining it. I'll just ignore it. I'll keep pretending. Then it'll disappear. (laughs) Hmm, That's not very useful. (laughs) And and then as things often happen, Beyond Blue reached out to me because I'd done some work with them in the past with my mum where we'd advocated for let's talk about mental health, supporting families. I would speak from a carer's perspective. Mum would speak from her perspective. They reached out to me, not knowing what I was going through, but they said, oh, we're setting up a new um, postnatal program. Would you like to be involved? And I went, "Uh, yes. Can you send me some information about postnatal depression? They sent me all this info, including a booklet with a checklist. And, they were my symptoms. I kept ticking it off like I'd read it and I'd go, oh, oh they're right. my symptoms. Then I'd ignore the booklet. I thought if I put the booklet away, the symptoms will disappear. No, they got worse. And I, and they, I felt sicker and sicker. And when I say that, it got to the point of I... I had to hide all the carving knives in our kitchen drawer. I wrapped them up in newspaper and threw them in our garbage bin in the dead of night because I was so frightened of what might happen. And that was when I thought, this is, you have to do something. I thought if anyone would have seen what I was doing, they would have been, oh, what is going on? And that was for me the my rock bottom where I thought, I have to I have to ask for help. I cannot keep going like this because I don't know what might happen next.
1: And also it was getting I guess the 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 behavior or what was or how you were feeling was getting worse it wasn't going away. It
0: wasn't. It was escalating the thoughts that were yeah. going through my head. And so I knew I had to tell someone. So I spoke to my mum. She was the first person I spoke to. I knew mum would understand having bipolar disorder. And and just the beautiful woman that she is, we're incredibly close. So I told mum and mum said to me, she said, you've got to promise me two things. Promise me you will tell Peter and promise me you will talk to your doctor. So I made right. my mum those promises. And she also, she also said, and I'll come round and I'll take the knives with me. I'll do all of that knowing that I would never do anything, but it was sort of a, a a symbol of you're going to be okay sort of thing, like that I was able to tell her yeah. that even though yeah. it was so frightening and she was able to say, no, that's not going to happen, it's okay. So she did that yeah. and then I promised, so yeah, I'd made those promises and I spoke to Petey and that was, I reckon, the hardest conversation of my life. Because I'd hidden it from him. At the time, you know, he he's a news presenter for Channel 9. Some of your listeners might, might know him from that. Previously, he was a reporter for 60 Minutes. So he was away for up to six months of the year. So in those early days, he was away a lot and I was able to hide what was happening. So when he'd come home, I'd put on my brave face again and then he'd go off oh. and travel and I'd fall apart. And... So I was, yeah, he was had no idea what was going on and then I thought he was coming home this particular weekend and I really thought I've made my mum this promise, I have to do something. So I cooked his favourite meal and which was the chicken schnitzel with panko. Actually, it was before I discovered panko breadcrumbs. They make a really good <laughs> crunchy schnitzel. So it was before I just... They do. They do. So it was before the joy of the panko, but it was chicken schnitzel, mashed potato. He loved that. I had Rocky Road in the fridge. We had dinner. And then I kept putting off the conversation, as you do sometimes with hard things. You go, oh, after this, after Tire this. Life. I thought, okay, Tire after life. we eat the Rocky Road, after we finish watching the telly. And I couldn't put it off for much longer. And then we were talking and Petey said, he calls me Pussycat because I'm a crazy cat lady. He said, oh, Pussycat, I'm so proud of you. You, um, you know, you're doing so well and it's all so good. And I thought, God, now's my chance. So I took a deep breath and I said, Petey, I'm not. I'm, I'm really frightened. I'm really frightened that I have postnatal depression. And then Petey being the beautiful man that he is, what he did to Rhea was that he took me into his arms and he said to me, it's going to be okay. And, and that is what I needed to hear that night. I didn't need to hear as often well-meaning people might say to someone who comes to them to ask for help, don't be so ridiculous. You're imagining yes. it. So-and-so yeah. far worse off. What about what's happening on the other side of the world? You'll be right. No- yeah. That is not helpful. If, totally. If someone, and you know this, if someone is brave enough, and I think it's the bravest thing you can do to ask for help, is brave enough to come and say, I need help, listen. You, you don't have to come up with the solution then and there, but listen to them. And because of Petey's response, I started the, even then to feel a little bit of weight come off my shoulders and that weight, it got lighter and lighter as then Petey did slip into mister Fixit mode, as I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, blokes do and that's okay. Yes. But he was like, right, okay, we're going to ring the doctor tomorrow, we're going to do this and blah, blah, blah. and And it was good that he did that. So I saw my doctor the very next day. I thought she was going to say to me, "Right, you're going to hospital, we're taking your baby." But she said to me, <laughs> "Yeah, that's what I thought." She said, "No, you, you know, clearly you are very unwell, but I'm going to I've organized for you to see a specialist psychiatrist in postnatal depression." and i was lucky that i then was able to see her the very next day so 2 days after i asked for help i was able to get the right help and i'll never f- Amazing. yeah and i'll never Amazing. never forget when i went in to see my psychiatrist for the first time i put on my brightest dress wore my brightest lipstick because there was still that part of me thinking oh i'll well, keep up the facade and i sat down and the first thing she said to me was you can stop pretending now and again, you know, a bit more weight came off my shoulders because I, she was giving me permission to be me. And then I poured my heart out to her. I told her everything. And I thought that she was going to say to me, you are a crazy lady. And she didn't. She said, but that's normal. And I went, normal? That is not normal. She said, it is normal for someone who has postnatal depression. And yet again, some more weight came off my shoulders because she was validating what I was feeling. She was putting a name to it. She was removing some of that shame that I felt, some of that stigma and some of that sense of failure. So it wasn't as if I was suddenly, okay, there by the end of that first appointment, it was a lot of work, I went on medication, I still take medication and I'm still a work in progress as we all are but that was the beginning of me embracing my imperfection and my vulnerability and it it was sort of, and even though it was a terrible time, I'm I'm in a strange way. I'm grateful that it happened because I wouldn't be who I am today without that happening to me.
1: I really love how open and vulnerable you are with, you know, your postnatal depression and mental health in general. I also try to be really open with my mental health as well. I tell people that I saw a psychologist and all of that stuff and it is so hurt, you're right, it's so hurtful when someone dismisses how you're feeling. Like if you're brave enough to say to someone, I'm not coping, I'm struggling, I need help. If they dismiss it um, and shut it down, that can be super, super helpful. I was also lucky. Um, my my partner, Michael, is a bit like Petey. He's a beautiful, lovely human being. Um, and so he was really good during my recovery and really supportive of my appointments with a psychologist and doing my treatments and I was on antidepressants for a really long time as well, there is still such a shame, such a stigma associated with mental health. Um, I don't know why because people like you who've got this awesome life are really open and vulnerable with it. I try to be really open and vulnerable with it. I see a lot of people on Instagram also doing the same thing, and I think the conversation has shifted um but I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done
0: oh there is and and i yeah. I mean I thank you because i you know I love you, and I think what you do and the way you talk about how you've been able to to shift the way you see things and do things and your vulnerabilities it it inspires and empowers other people and and as you know when you're going through stuff you can feel so alone and totally. and you feel like it's never going to end that feeling and i'm all about hope i think we all have to travel hopefully in life and also as i get older i like to think of myself as a chaser of joy i'm all for what is it that brings me joy and i'm and i know you've done a lot of work on you know is happiness you know can we be happy all the time i don't think we can but i think it's about contentment but also looking for those moments of joy amidst the often struggle of Day to day life when things are hard and difficult, but to, to but to grasp onto those wonderful things and often silly things, or and that's what I do. That's how I, um, in terms of my self care, I just. I take the piss out of myself and have a laugh at myself and (laughs) my terrible cooking. I mean, I'm a proud crap housewife, as you know, and
1: I cook lots. Well, well, talk talk to me about the time you dressed up as a fart then because I think that's quite... (sighs) Tell me about that. Oh, my God.
0: You see, this... People will ask me
1: what... I think it's unusual, (laughs) but hey, you know, I want to hear it from you.
0: (laughs) ask me, well, you know, what, what was your favourite moment on television? You know, I've worked in the media for 30 years and, and I say the, the time that I dressed as a fart on national television. And I was um, – <laughs> it still makes me laugh – what, and what it was about... The photos, the photos make me laugh. I've seen the photos. Well, because I made the costume, you see. I,
1: am, I love, I, am a, I love.
0: <laughs> I'm a bit of a crafty person. I do like to make a costume. And it was for when I was working on Studio 10 and we were doing a Halloween show. It was Halloween. And I thought, right, I want to dress as a fart because I'd seen this great picture of a little boy dressed as a fart on Instagram. I thought, I'm going to make that costume. And I wanted to surprise... My, my co-hosts with it as well because we're all in different costumes. So I ran out at the last minute, sat down and, um, and I remember Ita Butros who sat next to me, who is magnificent but terrifying in equal measure. Completely,
1: completely terrifying. Oh,
0: she looked at me up and down and she's like, what are you? And I went, I'm a fat." And she was like, uh, Why? And I basically said, well, why not? And laughed. And, <sighs> and and I think, though, that's more and more my philosophy for living about, well, why not? Why not give something a go? Why not be honest about what you're going through? Why not try that, that job? Why not stay in your jammies all day? Why not have cereal for dinner if you've had a really tough day? Well, whatever it is. And And so for me, dressing as a fart, I just loved it. But I'll always remember too, my darling Petey, who is the total opposite. I mean, the older I get, the more, he says eccentric. I say quirky. I get. But he's very straight, you know, straighty 180 and he just looks at me. But he embraces me being me. But I remember I was sitting up in bed late with the light on and he's going, what are you doing and i said i'm making a fart costume and he was like what <laughs> i'm not going to ask <laughs> so there i was with the chul with the green chul the white chul the brown chul and and but you know what it was fun and it brought me joy and yeah and that and again that you know for people listening you know, they might not, obviously they mightn't be dressing up as farts, but they might like what you love doing, running, or they might love having a coffee in bed or eating chocolate or whatever it is that brings you joy. Incorporate it in your life every day, if you can. Doesn't mean you've got to do a massive change to everything and how you live your life, but chase those moments that that bring you joy and that are good for you, because then I think we're better for the people around us. Yeah. If I totally, you know, you and you, I know you've spoken about this as well. If you start to feel like you're not doing something that's just for you, that sense of kind of resentment and doing everything for everyone else all the time, especially with kids, little kids, it's exhausting. And and I mean, I'll, I remember a time I felt terrible. I um pinched my daughter when she was, this was Giselle, when Giselle was about one because she kept pinch like she was pinching me and it really hurt. And I was like, please don't. I was trying to be calm, Mummy. Please don't do that. <laughs> that really hurts. And she just kept doing it. So I, t- I, p- I turned around and gave her a really big pinch and she burst into tears. I've done tears. this. I've done this. <laughs> don't you feel bad? I felt terrible. I felt so you guilty. Do.
1: But- you do. But how else, like how else do you get them to stop? Like I just... I, I think any any like parenting experts would be appalled, <laughs> appalled by what we're saying, but yeah, I've I've done the exact same thing because I just uh, I, oh. I, I didn't know how else to make it stop. Yes, so I yeah, and
0: and, and then though uh, it didn't stop, she gave me another pinch after I'd after I'd done it. But I think w- why we talk about this, isn't it, is to just basically share and to say to other people, it's okay, yeah, but it's okay yeah. to to. To be enough, not perfect, there's no such thing as being a perfect mum or a perfect wife or a perfect friend. you're enough and embrace what you're good at and and be gentle on yourself.
1: I want to talk a little bit about your career in the media because you had a really awesome one. You were on the news, you were on Studio Ten. Uh, from the outside, it seems like everything was going really, really well. But then, what did you do next? Well, I what I did next was that I sp- I left Studio Ten. I'd
0: been in that job for five years, and it was the best yeah. best job I've ever had on television. And and I think as well with the media, you know, your career, I've zig- zigzagged all over the place and there've been times when the phone hasn't rung, I haven't been able to find any work. So there've been real moments of self-doubt. But with Studio 10, it was a time for me of, I, I loved it. I, I think it was because I could be myself. I could be silly. I could dress as a fart, but I could also debate issues that I felt very strongly about. And it was lovely to have all of those parts of who I was. Other people could see that. But what happened for me was that I got to a point where I could feel myself burning out. And with and it happens for so many of us with trying to keep everything everything going. And even though I might have been trying to say outwardly to people, be gentle on yourself, don't put too much pressure on yourself, I still felt like I wasn't doing anything very well. And I was getting, by the end of each week, I was getting more tired. I could feel my resentment building. I'd be getting snappier with my daughters and with Petey and that wasn't just occasionally. It was happening more and more and I had to, again, tune into myself, into that voice that's inside of you, which often we can ignore and I know, Teria... Okay, okay, i got to stop logical.
1: you. are logical. How? how? <laughs> that's why I've got to stop you. You mentioned intuition and tuning into your voice inside you. How? By listening.
0: <laughs> by listening and and letting and what, are, and I what th- am I listening to? Well I think what it is because you're very logical being with an engineer I wanna, background yeah. and very yeah, I wanna and, and okay, that sort of I'll do this, 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 this and this, which all makes good sense sometimes. But often those sorts of either lists or Um, seemingly steps to do things can become too noisy, I like to say, that you forget what your heart, what's in your heart. And to me, your heart is different to your head. What is it that makes you happy? And, And the best way I can try and describe it is what makes my heart sing? So what is it for you, Terea, that makes your heart sing versus the logic of going through these steps to get to this
1: outcome. Right. Okay. okay. I think I understand because if you say, ask me what makes, what makes my heart sing or what makes me feel good, writing, spending time with my family, running, going on bushwalks, that type of thing, that makes my heart sing. So is that, that's what you mean.
0: Exactly. And, and that sense of, and, and that's not necessarily logical, that that it makes sense that that is good for you, but it's it's separating those ways of, of yes. thinking and being in tune with ourselves. And, and so much of life is about I think those logical steps that the career goals, the aspirations, the this 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 and this that we then lose sight of. Am I happy? What is how am I in here? And as I talk to her, I keep touching my chest because that, that's where it is for me. And, and I could feel that I wasn't and that that sort of, I say it, it's like a voice inside of me saying, but are you happy? And I ignored it for a while thinking, no, keep, keep pushing on. This is a great job. You've always wanted a job like this. Be grateful for that keep going, keep going, keep going. But I realised my anxiety started to return, even though I was still on my antidepressants. And I thought, oh, I I can't keep ignoring these signals that my body is telling me to change, to shift direction, to, to stop, to slow down. And it was when I listen to that and sort of made that that hard choice because it it was difficult to say you know what you need to make a change and change can be scary and i thought i have to make a change to the way i'm leading my life if i keep going on this path i don't know if i'm going to become someone that i really like very much cuz i wasn't liking how I was feeling, I wasn't liking the way I was talking to the people I loved. and I pro- and if I'm honest, which I am honest, um, I wasn't liking how I was talking to myself. And I thought you need to make a change. And I know that I was lucky that I was in a position that I could do that with the job that Petey, my husband does, he he's working full-time, he's got a great job that even though if I made a a choice to step back from my career, that would have an impact on us, but it wasn't an impact of if I leave my job, we won't be able to pay our mortgage. So I knew I could do that. And so I thought to myself, "If, if you don't make this change, you are doing yourself and everyone you love a disservice. There are all these things going for you to make this change. Stop making excuses. Be brave. Take that scary step because to me being brave is about you're frightened but you, you do it anyway. And so I thought, you know what, I am going to leave my full-time job and to be more present for my family, to lean in to being there for my family but also at the same time making choices around the work I do, working with the people that I want to work with and doing things that bring me joy. And again, I I appreciate that I'm lucky that I can do that, that it's not as simple or straightforward for many people. And again, I thought, because I can do this, do it. <laughs> come on.
1: Yeah. yeah, you've got that come opportunity on. and you're able to. Yeah, come yeah. on.
0: And, and so obviously for people, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as will change careers or leave your job. But But be aware that you can make changes in your life. It doesn't matter what stage you're at or where you're at. Life is full of change, but you can also be responsible for that. Sometimes, and you know this better than anyone, we don't have a choice about what happens to us, but we can choose how we decide to deal with it. And to me, you're the most extraordinary person in in the sorts of choices you make about how you deal with things that have happened and do happen in your life. And I think that's where our empowerment lies, that be, be empowered by
1: making a choice about this is how I'm going to deal with this. That was so good. That was so good, Jess. I feel like with me I've made a choice To create this really great life I've got for myself. And I want to note as well, I'm really lucky. I've had opportunities. I've got amazing friends and partner and family. So I've got all of that stuff working for me. Um, But I think I've made that choice to be a good person and to live a good life because the alternative... Like I was telling you before, it was pretty shit. Like living at my in-laws, watching TV all day, wasn't was. Love my in-laws, love my in-laws, but that wasn't particularly particularly exciting for me. So I do I do love that. Uh, what's your What's your advice for people who are stuck in a rut right now? Like they're feeling like they want to make a change.
0: Well, my advice would be listen to your heart and I know and Teresa's going no that's
1: against every part of my logical brain how did you how did you feel when you made that decision and you left your job how did you feel so I felt lighter I felt like
0: oh yes relief I felt relief Oh, I, I felt like I could exhale for the first time in a long time. I'd been existing with, you know, that sort of sense of everything, oh, tight and oh, holding it all together, but I felt lighter and that I could exhale. And in terms of advice for people in a rut, trust, trust yourself. Don't ignore, if, if you're feeling in a rut... You are in a rut. You know, I, in my, you know, earlier life that I shared with you, I would ignore those sorts of things, thinking, oh, no, no, just ignore it, it'll disappear. But things, they don't disappear. They become bigger <laughs> no, they and become don't. bigger problems, don't they? If we don't deal they with do. them, if we don't deal with those things, they become, ugh. And so take... Take a step, just make a small change if, if, if that's what it is and, and then see where it goes and then realise, actually, that wasn't so bad. I'm going to try this. Mm-hmm. Why don't I try that? And, and ask yourself that question as we were, what makes your heart sing? What, what is it that brings you joy? What
1: makes you feel good?
0: Yes, yes.
1: What make, Yes, and what makes you feel and good? And it's
0: different for all of us. And also too, it's different at different times in our life. And that was another lesson for me as well, that there's a time and a season for everything. We might be heading along a particular path and that served us well, but then there comes a time when you think, well, I don't have to keep repeating those patterns or doing things that worked in the past. You can do things differently and that's all right. In fact, I think it's essential because we're always growing and learning and, and I never, ever want to feel that I'm there yet because we're never there yet in our lives. I always want to remain open and questioning and curious about people and the wider world and, and compassionate and and open. I think it's about
1: being open to people and to experiences. And that seems like a really good place to end this interview, Jess. You're enough as you are. I love it. You've taught me so much during that hour. You've taught me so, so much. The power of being open and vulnerable, of sharing our stories, of carving out those little pockets of time during your day for yourself and just how... good it is to hear another mum say that sometimes they find that they get resentful and shitty as well. Um, It's always good to hear that and it's great to speak with you today, Jess. I love you. Thanks so much. Oh,
0: I love you, beautiful. And thank you for the privilege of being on your podcast because I'm one of your biggest fans and I just think you rock. I love you to bits. And I'll be back next week with a regular episode of the Jess Big Talk Show. Now, if you haven't already, subscribe, add me to your favourites because I never, ever want you to miss an episode, lovely listeners. And if there's someone in your life who you know will enjoy this conversation, share it with them and slip into my DMs. I love hearing from you. Listener.